And please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John as we continue our study through this wonderful book. 1 John chapter 3, and in a few moments we'll read verses 7 through 10. If you're visiting with us today, I'd encourage you to use the blue Bible provided for you in the pew pocket in front. You'll find that text on page 1022, 1022. And as we continue our study through 1 John, we find ourselves in need to circle back to our text from a couple of weeks ago. During our study, we've been examining the evidences of the new birth, how we can know who is really a Christian. And in fact, from 1 John 2, 28 to 3, 10, we looked at something of a paternity test, a way that you could tell whether or not God was indeed your heavenly father. And the Apostle Paul in that text had pointed out a couple of features or or traits of God's children. Just as my oldest daughter has my height and my youngest has his mother's facial features and hair color. My middle son has my childhood bashfulness and awkwardness. (laughs) So also God's children possess his features or traits. Now clearly they're not physical. Uh, They're spiritual. Uh, To borrow loosely from that great line from Martin Luther King Jr., the characteristics of godly aren't seen on the color of our skin, but rather in the content of our character. It's about the way that we live. Specifically, John says in the passage that we saw a couple weeks ago, that there are these two traits predominantly are a hope in Christ's future appearing. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 28, to chapter 3, verse 3. God's children hope for his future appearing. But also, they possess a habit of overcoming sin. It is their regular practice to overcome sin. Chapter 3, verse 4 through verse 10. But John does something interesting in the text that warrants more focus and attention. Let's now read verses 7 through 10 to see if you notice it. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, did you see it? Beyond just telling us about the paternity of God, John is careful to point out the power of the devil. In fact, he just assumes that his readers are aware of this enemy. He assumes that to behave unrighteously is to belong to the devil's domain. Have you ever given that much thought? Did you ever even notice it in your first reading that John in four verses will four times mention the devil? In doing so, he is building on a theme that has already been well established in Scripture. The devil, our enemy, shows up in the biblical record as early as Genesis 3. We just saw that a few moments ago. He shows up as late as Revelation chapter 20, and he's everywhere in between. If you just look in the New Testament, for example, of the 19 different authors of the New Testament, every one of them writes about Satan. Admittedly, only 19 of the 27 books will mention him by one of his names, but all of the biblical writers of the New Testament will talk about him indeed. And of the eight remaining books, they all imply his existence by referring to angels or demons. So when John writes of the devil here in these verses, he is assuming some awareness of the enemy that you may not possess. It's not a topic that's frequently discussed. In fact, most of us have a tendency to grossly misunderstand this enemy of our soul And I fully agree with C.S. Lewis that we typically err on the subject in one of two ways. 
He writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil or the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Do you see the difference between the two? Do you see a tendency even within your own soul to fall off the horse one direction or the other? The the terms that Lewis uses are the materialist and the magician. The materialist is the one who practically objects to the existence of the devil. And many of us, most of us, I would say, here in the West, in the Western Hemisphere, in Western thought, as great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of the Enlightenment, err toward materialism. We do not believe or think in terms of some type of invisible world with enemies raging and actual war for our souls. As one author put it, some believe Satan is merely the personification of evil. When they see devil, they just simply remove the D. Is that you? Or are you actually aware of an enemy of your soul? This is not an accurate view of the biblical teaching. Satan is more than just some kind of personification of evil. And if you do believe this, or if you refuse to believe this, rather, you may find yourself in serious trouble. You might actually dismiss the normal human failings and excuses of psychological struggles and and confuse these just for things that you can control when it could actually be some form of satanic opposition against you that could have been resisted or delivered and the power of Christ. So this message is for you today, the materialist. It's also for the magician. If the materialist is the one who objects to the existence of the devil, the magician is the one who obsesses over it. (laughs) It's a little more rare, admittedly, in our context. You typically see this thought pattern represented in continents like Africa, where tribalism still exists. I remember just talking to a Christian brother who told me of his story of how he came to faith in Christ and how he had actually believed that the witch doctor of his local village had cast a spell on him, preventing him from understanding the truth. Even though he had came to faith in Christ, he never renounced his belief in evil powers. We see this actually more popularly in our own culture in charismatic circles, in some charismatic circles in which there's this obsession over spiritual warfare and doing spiritual battle. And they're always naming the enemy and and talking about how to rebuke him and how to get him out of your your life. That the problem with this obsession is that one could tend to neglect the basic resources given to us in Christ and maybe assume a, a, a level of power or dominance to the devil that he actually doesn't possess. Assuming that he's stronger than he actually is, failing when they need not fail, or relying upon the wrong resources. So whether we tend toward materialism or magical specter, the text is for us because it is John, the spirit-inspired author, who is so careful to say that you are either in one family or the other, God the Father's or the devil. It's my desire today to use the scripture to help us understand our enemy so that we can overcome him. As I want to cover the backside of this topic. In other words, if two weeks ago we were focusing on what it looked like to be a child of the Father, here I want you to understand what it actually looks like then to be under the dominance of Satan. You need to understand him so that you can overcome him. And the, the outline today is really simple, especially for those of you who like to take notes. You'll, I think, like this. Basically, we're going to cover this in three steps. Who he is, what he does, and how we overcome. Who he is and what he does will be pretty theological. It will feel like we are in a seminary classroom for probably the first 20 minutes of this message. So just go ahead and buckle in for that. But we need an accurate understanding of who he is before we get to, and what he does before we get to the how we respond, the how we overcome. And that portion of the message will obviously be more pastoral as we begin to tie it back into our text in 1 John. So let's first see who he is. 
to overcome our enemy, obviously, we must first understand him. And you will be surprised to know that God's word discloses much about the devil, primarily through his names and his nature. His names. The quickest way to understand something is by reading the label. We want to know what we're talking about, and so we give labels, titles, names to things. The most popular of the titles ascribed to our enemy is the devil, or the devil, or Satan. The devil, or Satan. A devil is simply the Greek word diabolos. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's where we get our English word diabolical. In Greek, a, a diabolos was someone who actually was a slanderer. Someone who would run someone else down. The devil was just the slanderer of all. He was the the best of slanderers. The the supreme slanderer. That's why we were just singing before the throne of God above. Because in that second verse, it actually describes the devil as the accuser of the brethren. He is the one that wants to put us at enmity with God. He wants God to see us as aligned with him. And therefore, he wants us to be rejected in the way that he too was rejected. So he is the devil, he is the one who is, wants to set us at enmity against God, but even more popularly for us, we know the name Satan. Satan is in the Old Testament and New Testament, and it's just the basic word for adversary, or enemy, or opponent. As such, he is the opponent of God's people. So even from these two titles, you already get some sense of who he is. But there are an abundance of other titles that kind of fill you in, just Listen carefully, I'm not going to give you the verse references. If you want them, email me. But these are the other names that the scriptures give to our enemy. Abaddon, Apollyon, accuser of the brethren, adversary, Beelzebub, Belial, and deceiver of the world. He's also called the dragon, the enemy, the evil one, the father of lies, the god of this age, Lucifer, murderer, prince of demons, prince of the power of the air, roaring lion, ruler of this world, The star fallen from heaven, the strong man, the serpent, the tempter, and the wicked one. Get an idea of who he is now? (laughs) And while these names already provide a graphic picture, the scriptures reveal so much more about who he is. So we see not only his names, but his nature. His nature. The scriptures reveal that the devil is personal, spiritual, powerful, and defeatable. You need to be aware that this is part of who he is. He is personal, spiritual, powerful, and defeatable. When I say that he is personal, by this I mean he possesses all the features of personality, mind, emotions, and will. He is not an impersonal force. He is not the personification of evil. The scriptures affirm the devil's personality on account of his intellect. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 it refers to Satan's devices or schemes or his strategies. He, he thinks, he plots. The scriptures also affirm the devil's personality on account of his emotions. I mean, around creation, the devil desired to oppose God. It was in his heart to do so. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17. Around the consummation toward the end of time, the devil will express rage and fury against God's people. He feels hatred. Revelation 12, 12. The scriptures also affirm his personality on account of his volition or his will. 2 Timothy 2.26 says this clearly. He possesses a will. Volition. He not only thinks and feels, but he acts. He tempts. He rebels. And we'll see more on this later. And this is why, friends, when we read through the Bible and we see Satan referred to, the scriptures use personal pronouns. It refers to him as a he, as opposed to an it. Uh, Just listen to this passage from Ezekiel, chapter 28, verses 14 and 16, where he talks about Satan being a you, you desired this, you desired that. He's personal. And so what I want you to get in this is that he actually hates you, me. He is against you. He acts to oppose you. See, if we just think of the devil as some type of force, we're not that threatened by it. I think everyone in this room could understand that gravity could be a threatening force for many of us. Especially if we were trying to play around on that balcony and just test out the rails. 
We know that ultimately gravity could harm us. But a a force is, is neutral. However, if I told you that I was aware that someone had actually hired an assassin to kill you. (laughs) Well, there's a different scenario. Gravity, who cares, just got to be a little careful. An assassin, you're on the lookout. You see the difference between the two? This is a personal enemy. Not only is he personal, but he is spiritual. From the best of the biblical data, it seems that Satan was created as an angel, and angels are typically invisible. The data for this comes from Isaiah 14, verses 12 and 13, that speak of him as a shining one that fell from heaven. Matthew 25, 41, and Revelation 12, 9 associate the devil with the fallen angels. And the passage I referenced earlier in Ezekiel 28, verses 14 and 16, speak of him as the anointed cherub, the highest classification of angels. And as an angel, he is a spirit. He is finite and limited. He's incorporeal and invisible. Nevertheless, he can occasionally manifest himself in visible form. Why do I explain this? Because you need to understand that you don't typically see him. We don't battle with physical objects. He's not wanting to make himself known. He is personal. He is spiritual. He is powerful. As the highest ranking of angels created by God, the devil possessed great power and authority. As such, he still rules over a vast army of angels, and this is why he's called the prince or the ruler of demons in Matthew 12, 24. And through his demonic minions, he exercises authority in several realms. This first one may not surprise you. The the devil has great sway over the governmental realm. (laughs) Political powers and leaders are often enabled by Satan. Uh, Two of the clearest examples of this come from the Old Testament where the devilish dominion of Satan is seen in exhibiting or, or empowering, almost in a superhuman way, the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. The king of Babylon is described in Isaiah 14, the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, but you can't read that and just think he's talking about the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. You have to think, wow, this is, what he's attributing to these human figures is something supernatural. And this is why the New Testament follows suit, calling Satan the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. I mean, just think, friends, how in the world could a country like ours legislate the slaughter of millions of babies per year? Satan surely had some say. Or just we think back to the previous century of something like the Holocaust and millions of Jews slaughtered at the behest of a government. Satan has some sway. He always has. Scripture gives him that. God has allowed him to have some measure of rule and authority over the governmental realm. It's not only over the realm of government, and you see that when you're reading through the New Testament, it talks about the powers. But you also see that he has some measure of power over the physical realm. So that may surprise you. But just think back to Sunday school. Remember the story of Job? Chapters 1 and 2. It's right at the very beginning. What is it that God would enable or allow Satan to do? In Job 1 and 2, we see that Satan inflicts natural disasters, disease, and death. In the Gospels, it's constantly seen that the devil's underlings inflict disease. Luke 13, 11 is a good example of that. Maybe even with Paul and his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, if we interpret that to be some type of physical malady that Paul himself had experienced, obviously it was one allowed by God. 2 Corinthians 12 makes that clear. But he says it was a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to harm him. So government, the physical realm, and I think here's the most surprising. The most surprising realm of Satan's power, please listen to this carefully, is the religious realm. Did you know that? He exercises the most authority in the religious realm. In the Old Testament, demons are associated with idolatry in Psalm 106, verses 36 and 37. And in the New Testament, John attributes false religious groups to Satan in Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9, saying that these people belong to the synagogue of Satan. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 and the verses following, Paul labels legalistic teachings as the doctrines of, do you remember? 
demons. 2 Corinthians 11 is an interesting one. Why don't you turn there with me for those of you who are familiar with your New Testaments and it wouldn't take you too long to find. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and we'll look at verses 13 through 15. Paul, in context, by the way, is talking about these false apostles who have come in and tried to undermine his authority. They obviously had a different message. And then he's explaining this in verse 13 and says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Have you ever thought about that? Like the, I think I have a hard time accepting this because typically if I see someone that's involved in some form of false teaching, okay, I tend to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, oh, well, they just must be confused. And I don't know, maybe it's because I want the benefit of the doubt. But the scriptures are so clear. When someone peddles teaching other than the gospel, they have in some way been deceived or empowered by Satan himself. This is where he operates. Friends, don't be fooled by the line of Halloween that the devil's trying to scare you out of your house or out of some graveyard. What he's trying to do ultimately is deceive you in your religious beliefs. He is trying to draw you away from biblical truth. That is his domain. Government, yes. Physical realm, yes. But the religious realm, this is where he focuses. And and though he is powerful, I'm glad that the scriptures also inform us that he is defeatable. He may be powerful, friends, but he is not all-powerful. And admittedly, the prospect of a personal, invisible, spiritual, and powerful adversary is an intimidating one, but it should not be a disheartening one. And I say this for three reasons. We'll focus on this more in the end, but these are facts about Satan that you should be aware of. One, he is created. He is not an eternal being. Colossians 1.16 makes it crystal clear that the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who made all the powers and authorities, whether they be invisible or visible, in heaven or on earth. He is created, and therefore he is limited. Which leads me to the second point, he is contained. As a created being, he does not have unlimited power or capacity. He is contained. We even sang about this earlier in Only a Holy God. He is not always victorious, nor has he ever won a battle against our all-powerful God. Things that we see in scriptures that he cannot do. He cannot foretell the future. He cannot give life. He's never been able to give life. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one which is a a fascinating passage, he says that he desired to destroy or to sift Peter like wheat. But Jesus said he wouldn't be able to because he had already prayed for him. (laughs) He's contained. And then finally, he's condemned. He's already condemned. We read about it in Genesis 3. The pronouncement of his condemnation happened in Genesis 3. And then we look at the cross Hebrews 2.14 speaks to this. And Jesus at the cross had already like put to death at least the beginning stages of his power and dominance over all men. At that point, those who would believe in Christ had been liberated from the domain of Satan and enabled to now live for God in a way that no one had ever been before. And then in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, we see in graphic detail the story of his final end. And he never shows up on the pages of Scripture again. It's like expired milk. (laughs) The date's already been set. The decomposition is already in place. His authority curdles. Christ has already secured it. The Father has already promised it. The book of Revelation has already foretold it. So he's created. He is contained. He is condemned. And so as we seek to understand our enemy, we first understand who he is. But to overcome him, we also need to understand what he does. Not just who he is, but what he does. You need to be aware of how he operates. 
Understanding our enemy's action plan, by the way, is rather simple. He actively works in three different directions. He defies God, he deceives the world, and he disrupts the church. Now, defying God is obvious, as his name betrays, Satan, adversary, the adversary of God and his people. He desired to be like God and failed, and his his attacks, by the way, are primarily aimed at God. This is why, when we get back to our first John text, that John places a dichotomy between the children of God and the children of the devil. For him, there's no other options. You're either on one side or the other. God is about righteousness. Satan is about wickedness. God is characterized by light. Satan is characterized by darkness. God is characterized by love. Satan is characterized by hate. God creates life. Satan dwells in the realm of death. That's what we see actually in the book of 1 John if you just do a basic theology. But I want you to know it's bigger than 1 John. It's actually the whole like meta-narrative of Scripture. We see that he is the defier of God from the very beginning. I mean, at creation, Genesis 3, 1 to 4, he's leading man into sin. He tried to defy God's plan for redemption later at redemption in Matthew chapter 4. So creation, he tries to defy God. At redemption, he tries to defy God because you remember what happened to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 as he is seeking to fulfill all righteousness. What is it that the devil is trying to get him to do in the wilderness? To sin. So that he would have to atone for his own sin and not be able to atone for the sins of the world. It happens not only at creation and redemption, but then you see it again in the consummation as he will empower a future Antichrist who will deceive and dominate man in an unprecedented way. And yet Revelation 13 and then Revelation 18 speak to his clear demise. He is always, no matter where you look at it in the scriptures, defying God. There's no surprises there. Here's the one, though, that you probably need to be more careful about. And that is his desire, his design to deceive the world. It it is the way that he operates. It is his modus operandi to deceive and dominate the world. He deceives the world. I'm not talking about, like, physical things. I'm talking about the people who inhabit it. He deceives the world by indoctrinating them in false beliefs. He deceives the world by indoctrinating them in false beliefs. This is getting back to what we were just describing about his authority in the religious realm. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, it says that Satan literally blinds the eyes of unsaved people to the gospel. You ever wonder that? Like you're trying to share the truth of God with someone, and you're like, why don't they get it? (laughs) Like it's just so clear. Or they're blinded on account of their sin, but they're also doubly blinded on account of Satan's hold over them. He does not want them to know or to see. That is part of his domain, his design. Deception. It not only happens there, but you remember the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. And he's sowing a seed, and do you remember the first type of soil? It was this hard ground, and the birds of the air would come and take the seed away. Who, in the interpretation of the parable, does Jesus say the birds are? Satan. He's the one that distracts the mind from truth. I mean, it could happen even in a service like this. Something as simple as the crinkling of a peppermint wrapper (laughs) he could use to distract someone from hearing truth. Now, by the way, if you're trying to eat a peppermint today, it's okay. (laughs) God is greater than that. But it is in the subtlest ways that he can just distract us. You could be in an intense spiritual conversation. I forgot who I was talking with. Someone this week who said that they were in an intense spiritual conversation trying to share the gospel with someone and they got like three minutes into it and the dude's phone rang. And it was like a telemarketer. Well, it's kind of hard to restart the spiritual conversation again once the telemarketer interrupts the phone call. That's the way Satan works, though. He's trying to deceive the world. His favorite ploy, by the way, is works righteousness. I already mentioned that in 1 Timothy 4. But I want to be kind and and help you understand this. Uh, That's why the reformers would often attribute some of the errors of Roman Catholicism to Satan. Because it looked so good and yet it emphasized works so much. Not all. But most are saying, Yes, the salvation by grace through faith plus the sacraments. Satan revels in that. This is his design. This is what he wants to do. This is the way that he operates. He he deceives. 
but he deceives so that he can dominate. <laughs> See, as he keeps people deceived, he still dominates them in, in false behaviors. It isn't just about false doctrine, but Ephesians 2, just listen to this. It's, it's described so clearly. And you, he's talking about believers, were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he's attributing that to you, like you were walking in your sin. But notice this, he describes it. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see how that is just like the parallel passage to what we've been studying in 1 John 3 verses 7 to 10? Everybody gets all hot and bothered over the fact that they could be a child of Satan. And yet the text makes it so clear. You are under his dominion. You are under his authority until you've repented of your sin and you've relied on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He owns you, friend. And that's why all of our counseling here, and I'll just go and say this for anybody that's visiting today, All of our counseling here always begins with trying to figure out, is this person really in the faith? You got marriage trouble? Guess what? We're trying to figure out if you're really a Christian. You're having trouble with your kids? Guess what? We're trying to figure out, are you really a Christian? You're struggling with pornography or some other personal vice? I want to know first and foremost, are you really a Christian? Because you have no capacity to overcome those things until you are in Christ. Satan deceives and dominates the world. I would say that he dominates the world by deceiving them. By keeping them from the truth, they stay under his dominion. That's his design. Defying God, deceiving and dominating the world. And I want to be careful how I say this. I think I have the right word here. Disrupting believers. That's the third way or direction in which Satan operates. He disrupts the church. Uh, you all know this to be true, right? Uh, just because you come to faith in Christ doesn't mean that the devil is through with you. <laughs> he still longs to disrupt the people of God, even though they are secure in the kind grip of God, our Savior. Now, the reason I say disrupt is because it's better than the word destroy. He cannot destroy the true child of God. The true believer will make it to the end, Romans eight twenty eight. But... He does long to disrupt God's purposes for our life. In fact, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, depict the, what's happening between us and the devil as all-out war. Let's listen to these verses. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. That's war, friends. (laughs) That's not just a bad day or you making better decisions. This is all-out warfare against your soul. This is his agenda for you and this church. That's why I could take Satan's activity toward the believer and use military terminology to describe it. Let me move in three different ways in which he works here. Probably from the most obvious to the most surprising. The most obvious way that Satan designs against you as a believer is direct attack. And you get that. I mean, if you actually read through, I'm not just talking about random sins in the Bible, even though he could have some part in that, but actually scour the scriptures to see what the Bible actually attributes to Satan. And these are some of the things that it says that Satan does directly with believers. He tempts us to lie. He did that with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5.3. To commit sexual sin. He's typically behind that, 1 Corinthians 7.5. To live for this world, 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. And then when you read the rest of 1 John to chapter 5, verse 19, you see his connection there. To rely on human wisdom. That's a big way that he works. First Chronicles 21, he did that with David. And then in Matthew 16, 21 to 23, remember when Peter says to Jesus, 
no, you shouldn't die on the cross. And he says, get behind me, who? Satan. Why? Because he was relying on human wisdom. And, friends, I need to say this because it'd be an easy one to overlook. But one of the ways that is most often attributed, or one of the most powerful ways that Satan works against us is to discourage us. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 10. It was actually one of our small group leaders that helped me understand this. Erasmusen's good, you're all here. I remember one of the first small groups I sat in with you guys, you gave out this article from John Piper, and we discussed it on what it meant that the devil was a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we often take that passage out of context, but when you look at the verses surrounding it, he's talking about getting people to be discouraged, to be anxious. <laughs> That's the work of Satan. It is direct attack. So you're, you're, you're aware of that one. But here's another way you might not be as aware I want you to know that the devil not only has designs against you, but he has designs against the church. He wants to promote division. I mean, any good army (laughs) knows to divide the enemy. And Satan does that. And again, I'm not just picking random stuff that I think we need to talk about. This is stuff from the scriptures that directly speak to Satan's authority. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he attempted to split the church over a disagreement on a church discipline issue. That's the schemes of Satan. That's what it's describing, this, this idea that the people would split into two different factions. In Ephesians 4 Verses 26 and 27, he incites us to anger with others. He's behind that. It's not just that they're a jerk or they're hard to get along with or they had a hard day. No, it could be Satan himself trying to destroy and divide the body. And then the third way. Satan disrupts the church by infiltration. This one is the most surprising to me. I mean, I learned it several years ago, but as I learned it, you would just think direct attack. Of course, you would expect temptation. I would even kind of expect division. But infiltration? Well, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 11, 13 to 15, we read it earlier. False teachers? There's an obvious one. That's, That's why we're so careful about who we have teach at this church, and we ask them a lot of questions about what they believe. We ask all of you, by the way, when you join the church, what do you believe? We have you read a doctrinal statement. What are we trying to do? We're trying to protect the church from future false teachers. We, we care about that, right? But here's one that most people don't think of. Fake Christians. He not only infiltrates the church through false teachers, but he also does it through fake Christians. He weakens the testimony of the church by, to use Jesus' metaphor, sowing tares among the wheat. They look identical. But only when you harvest them can you really tell whether or not it was the real thing. And so for all this talk in 1 John, it seems like I have the same application every week. Make sure you're in the faith. Make sure you're in the faith. Make sure you're a Christian. Please talk to the other people around you and make sure they're real Christians. Why am I doing that? Because I am actively trying to resist the designs of Satan upon this church. Jesus wants a pure church. Satan wants a polluted one because he knows it will disrupt the influence of the church in the outside world. How many times have you tried to witness to somebody and they would say to you, oh, I don't want to listen to all this, the church is full of hypocrites. Um, I don't want to give him too much credit, but I think he's doing a decent job at that. So it's, it's not just some cosmic battle between good and evil that's over our heads, like Satan versus Jesus. Nor is it just Satan's hold on the unsaved world around us, although we're concerned about that. But even though we are in the secure in the grip of God, our Savior, He still designs to disrupt us through direct attack, through dividing us from one another, and through infiltration. So the devil is indeed a formidable enemy, is he not? <laughs> So, how do we respond? A biblical overview of Satan demands an equally biblical response. Here's where we need to pay the most attention because some attempts to overcome the enemy have been expressed in the most asinine of ways. 
I mean, people will understand these first two points about Satan and his power and the way that he works and operates, and then they pick the most ridiculous strategies to overcome him. I think I've told the story, pardon me if I have, but I'll just give you a quick example of this because it's more widespread than you'll believe. I was first year in marriage, and it was beautiful springtime in Raleigh, North Carolina. That's where we lived at that moment, and I had a a brother in Christ at the furniture store that I worked at uh, who wanted to, to help me move some furniture that I had purchased from the store into my house. And I was happy to have his help. And uh, we got in the truck, and he runs to his car real quick, grabs a purple bag and a little bottle, uh, and then runs back to the truck. He says, I wanted to get this before I went over to your house. I'm like, what is it? He said, well, it's a shofar and anointing oil. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, a shafar is a ram's horn that's like a trumpet. Um, and then he brought the, this bottle of anointing oil. I had no clue what he had in mind. Well, we get to the house before we even put any furniture in the house. He opens the front door, opens the back door, gets out his anointing oil, puts a cross of olive oil on the front door, a cross of olive oil on the back door, and then, I'm not kidding, he goes in the house and he blows that ram horn <laughs> several times. I said, what is going on? (laughs) He said, this is spiritual spring cleaning. Be sure to get all the evil spirits out of your house. Where did he get that? I assume he got it from Trinity Broadcasting Network. I, I mean, I have no clue how he would have come upon that type of understanding because there is nowhere in the Bible that says that ram horns or olive oil get rid of satanic presence nor will a cross or a crucifix by the way so what are the resources given us in scripture that's the question before us so if we're acknowledging the reality of spiritual warfare what's the response what's the biblical response There's so much and this is the struggle of a theological message so I'm going to try to boil it down into two things for you First is a survey, not only who Satan is, but how we should respond. I see the first one being that we should recall Satan's schemes. You want to respond biblically to what's going on, to who he is, what he's trying to do, you need to recall, mentally recall, Satan's schemes, for, especially for those of you with the materialist tendencies. For those of you who tend to just see the world in front of you and not the one behind it. First Peter 5, 8 which we referenced earlier, encourages us in this battle against Satan to be sober and vigilant. Now, I like both of those words. Sober, mentally self-controlled and vigilant. Mentally sharp and aware and watchful. Now, those are two different words, friends. Sobriety is when we think carefully about ourselves, maintaining an accurate picture of our own weakness. Okay? So when someone's sober-minded, they're, they're humble. They don't think excessively of themselves. Vigilance is when we're actively on the lookout for attack. So sobriety is inward. Vigilance is outward. Vigilance is like the point man on a patrol in Vietnam. He's, he's looking. He's, he's scouring like the bushes to make sure that there's, there's no attack on the horizon. He's aware of something that could be upsetting him, something that could be attacking him. Every military leader devours intelligence reports on the enemy before he enters into battle. And so also the believer should live with a warfare type of mindset. You should know that you've got personal weaknesses, you've got your own Achilles heel, if you will, and Satan has certain strongholds and designs against you. Every believer should live with an awareness of Satan's design to deceive him and thereby disrupt him from enjoying spiritual power and productivity. You need to be aware, friends, that you are not in neutral territory. Many of us are dancing in minefields, and we have no idea why our life is blowing up. You just laissez-faire, go through your day, and think, today's going to be a good day. You are not on neutral territory. This is war. (laughs) I I would encourage you, as you're recalling Satan's schemes, you... 
you need to consider your weaknesses. You probably need to enlist help, and you need to offer help. When I say consider your own weaknesses, it's a simple question. I challenge you to ask it to someone by the end of the day. To a brother or sister in Christ, ask this question. What do you believe to be the greatest spiritual weakness in my life right now? That's a hard question to ask. But I think if you care, you would ask. You need to consider, what is the greatest spiritual weakness that I have? How am I most susceptible to the attack of the enemy? Ask yourself, and then ask someone else. If we were in junior church, I would give candy to everyone next week who asked that question. It is that important. And if you don't ask that question, you don't have to do my little application. I don't have a Bible verse that says you've got to do that. I'm just making a strong recommendation. But I will say this. If you don't care to ask that, if you don't really give a rip about your spiritual concerns, about whether or not you have a weakness, I would wonder whether or not you're still in the grip of Satan or a child of God. God's children care. You need to consider it. You need to consider his schemes. You need to enlist help. It isn't, it shouldn't be you versus the world. (laughs) This is what this church thing is all about. Isn't it interesting that in our church covenant, we have agreed to exercise an affectionate watch care over one another? Friends, what do you think that means, an affectionate watch care? (laughs) It means we are looking out for one another's spiritual good. We care. So once you know what your spiritual weakness is or where you're susceptible to attack, my encouragement to you would be, open to someone else about what that is so that they can be praying with you about it and helping you. And then finally, I would say offer it. Even if nobody ever asks, if you are going to exercise an affectionate watch care, (laughs) you're going to just say, hey, brother or sister, I realize that you're in this situation right now and you will be especially prone to this temptation or that and I want to pray with you about that. For the younger The younger man especially, it could be lust. And an older man coming alongside him and saying, I know it's hard, but I want to help you. I want to pray with you in this. That's enlisting help and offering it. For the middle-aged, it could be gossip or materialism or worldliness. But it, It involved an active coming alongside and saying, look, I know that you scored that big job. That's awesome. But I want you to be careful that you're still leveraging your resources for the good of the kingdom of God and not for yourself. That's a hard conversation to have. For the older among us, it could be discouragement or discontent. As the next doctor report comes out unfavorably, as you spend another three to four days by yourself in your house with no one checking on you, it would be wise and well for some of us to come alongside the older saints among us and care for them and love them and say, you are not alone in this. I know that according to 1 Peter 5, Satan's design is to discourage you and to make you anxious, but you are not alone. I've seen good examples of this. I remember a friend of mine was raising his, his boys, and uh, once his son turned 13, he had this talk with him, you know, and now the, the son is aware of lust and this type of thing, and he's trying to battle it. And I remember that we were about to go into the mall together, and I don't know what it is about the way girls dress in a mall, but they lose their minds and their clothes and dress immodestly. And the guy comes alongside his son right before he steps into the mall and says, Hey, son, I know this is going to be a struggle, but I want you to know that we're going to battle this together. I had never seen that. (laughs) But the fact that he knew that he was stepping into a battle zone and that he came alongside him, that was a beautiful picture. Another one that I saw of this, or actually heard of this even this week, the church that I used to attend in Washington, D.C., there were two guys in the church who were struggling to get along with one another. They worked for one another. One worked for the other. And so their philosophies were constantly putting them at, at just loggerheads. They were just bumping up against one another. And in a members meeting, they asked the pastor if they could get up and have the church pray for them because they are so prone to conflict. What are they doing? 
They recognized that Satan's plan is to divide the church, and then they enlisted the help of the church and said, hey, you pray for us as we struggle through this together. Sounds like somebody's taking sin seriously. And then even in my own life, in just recent days, it has been my great privilege to, when experiencing acute temptation, to have this small group of guys on a text chain and just say, hey, guys, I'm really struggling right now. I need your help. I even took a couple of the elders to lunch and said, hey, I need you to help me with this. Why? Because we're battling this together. I'm recalling that Satan has schemes and designs against us, and it is just too serious. It is too important for us to just fly solo. Be aware that you're being attacked. But not only should we recall Satan's schemes, we should also rely on God's unstoppable resources. There's recollection, but there's also reliance. For those of you with the magician tendencies, for those of you who obsess over the powers of spiritual darkness, for, for, for those of you that this could cause great fear and anxiety, I want you to know that even though your great enemy is indeed Satan, your greatest Savior is Jesus Christ. He has overcome the powers of darkness, and you are safe in him. There's two things, I think, that help us when we're trying to rely on God's resources. One is to concentrate on what he has already provided. I'm not going to do an exposition right now of Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, the, the passage about the spiritual armor, but I'll have to admit that as a kid who grew up in a Christian home and went to a Christian school and went to a Christian college and then went to a seminary, I think I've heard more sermons than anybody in this room on that text. And here's the problem that I have with them. I never know what to do with it when I'm done. I'm like, oh, well, thanks for telling me about what the Roman armor looked like and everything, but I still don't have a clue what I'm supposed to do with that. Am I supposed to pray and ask God to put on this armor at the end of the day? Having meditated on it further, I'm I'm fully convinced that Paul reminds us of these spiritual resources of this armor because he wants us to remember who we are in Christ Truth, you've already got it. Salvation, it's already there. Righteousness, it's there. You are in it. You are safe in Christ. Recall who you are in Christ so that you can resist the devil. It is all about the battle for identity. It isn't at the key moment saying, all right, God, now give me the shield of faith. It is realizing that he has already gifted you with the faith to overcome. Lord, I pray that the the gospel shoes of peace would make me ready. No, you already know the gospel. You are ready. You can mobilize yourself for this battle. This is why 1 John is, is... It's presenting it the way that it does. is because he wants you to know that because you are in Christ, because you are son of God, you already have what you need. I mean, I guess we could get to advanced strategies like Bible reading and prayer and accountability and church membership and all that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, what he's really hoping for is that the people will recall that they're in Christ and therefore they're not being dominated by the devil. Let me read our final text again. We're right where we started. Let's get a better understanding of 1 John 3. He says... Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see what he's doing here? He's reminding them of who they are. You are a child of God, and therefore it is impossible for you to go on sinning, to habitually give in to sin. The children of the devil, on the other hand, they're stuck. He's bringing them back to a recollection of the new birth. And that's why I say the resources are to recall Satan's schemes and to rely on God's unstoppable resources. Friends, you have access to this if you have been converted, if you have repented and relied upon Jesus alone. You have what you need in him. Let me leave you with a picture of this in action. 
beyond the more culturally obvious holiday on Wednesday, October 31st will mark the 401st anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So on some calendars, it says Halloween slash Reformation Day. For those of you who aren't familiar, the, the Reformation, no, that the reason why there's a holiday for it is because it, it initiated this movement in church history when God used a monk named Martin Luther to rescue the gospel from the clutches of darkness, liberating the scriptures from their Roman captivity. Uh, the, the best way I can describe it to you is this. There were two problems for about a thousand years in the church. The first one was that the Bible had been translated into Latin, which was cool because people spoke Latin, but then people didn't speak Latin. And guess what happened? The Bible stayed in Latin. And so the only people who could teach the word of God to others were priests who worked for the church, and they would tell people what the Bible meant. Nobody could read the Bible on their own. Well, ergo, second problem, they couldn't understand the gospel for themselves. The Roman Catholic institution had actually started like financially capitalizing on this leverage that they had, and then they started obscuring the gospel and telling people that they could buy some indulgences or do some of these ceremonies, and then these people could get saved. And anyway, it's, the truth was obscure. Nobody had challenged that system, at, by and large, successfully for literally a thousand years until Luther. Nailing his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle, He actually starts a movement, and he fought, friends. He battled. He did it through his writings, his translating, his teaching, his preaching. He faced intense struggles all along the way. And and you probably don't get this because you just think, oh, well, if I disagree with one church, I'll just go to the other one. Friends, when the Roman Catholic emperor has not only the power of the church but the power of state, you've got a problem if he pronounces you as a heretic. Because that means there's literally a price on your head. You're going to die. So, Luther was on the run basically from 1517 forward, and his companions were trying to just stay alive. Now, fast forward to 1527. He's been literally battling for his life and for the good of the gospel for 10 years, but 1527 represented an especially difficult year. And that year, several of his friends and family died from the hand of a plague. His co-laborers in the gospel were literally being tortured and murdered. Acute physical maladies and intense depression and anxiety struck with a vengeance. I mean, if all those things happened to you in a year, you'd say it was a pretty rough time. You would probably, you know, blame it on, man, the political scheme. You know, man, we just, we need some new government policies around here. (laughs) We would say stuff like, man, it's just a tough year. What a series of unfortunate events. Man, Luther would have done better if he would have had some better medical resources. But I want you to know what Martin Luther would attribute his maladies to. He believed that the enemy of our soul was attacking him. Here's a letter from August 21st of that year. He wrote, My life consists in this, that I know and boast that I have taught the word of Christ purely and to the salvation of many. And this burns up Satan so that he would kill and destroy me along with the word. I am buffeted all the more in the spirit by the prince of this world. And Luther's biographers believe that it was in this very year, in this very summer, during this severe season of challenge, that he would pen the words of the song that we were about to rehearse together. Let me read to you just a couple of the relevant lines. Our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. Craft and power are great, and he's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal. He says in the third verse, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. What I love about Luther's perspective that we can borrow from is here is a man who recalled Satan's schemes. He knew he was not on neutral territory. He knew he was under attack, and yet at the same time, he still relied on the unstoppable resources that he had in Jesus Christ. He didn't need a shofar or anointing oil or some type of fancy incantation. He was able to rely on Christ himself and what he had already provided. And those are our resources. Listen, many of you today 
are under attack because simply you're God's child. It could be emotional devastation, physical degradation, financial limitation, spiritual confrontation. These things face us every week. And some of it admittedly could be self-induced, friends, but let me remind you that still you have an enemy that's working against you, and therefore your only recourse is Christ himself. You know what we need to do then? Is we turn and rely on him once more. That's where we're in today. We rely on him again. I'm going to have us do this in song. I'll ask our musicians to come up. And we will sing this most famous hymn of Luther as we recognize the authority of Christ over our enemy and trust in him once more. And I'll say this. If you're here today and you don't understand what it means to be God's child versus Satan's, you have questions about your spiritual condition, talk to me, talk to one of the believers around you. We want you to enjoy the victory that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Let's stand so we can sing together.